Morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. The title this morning's sermon is What Happens to Unbelievers When They Die? Let's pray. Father, we come to some verses that I think are so incredibly sobering. The more I reflected on this week as I was studying, the more unimaginable the torment that awaits uh, unbelievers seemed to me. I would pray that as we sit here as believers uh, and consider the reality of what awaits unbelievers, that we would be even more thankful for Christ and what he's done for us, as Jameson shared about. Sitting at the foot of the cross, I would pray that as we find ourselves there uh, looking up at Christ, we um, would be moved with thankfulness that the wrath that is due us was received by him and that we wouldn't have to know the suffering that the rich man and other, other unbelievers would experience. You brought us to these verses, Lord. I don't know that I necessarily would have thought about spending a whole sermon dealing with the torments of um, the next life friend believers, but it's in your word. It's important, and I pray that we would be uh, moved to share the gospel with others. It would be another result of this sermon, that as we think about what awaits those people outside of Christ, that uh, the loved ones, family members, neighbors, uh, co-workers that, you, uh, that are in our lives or that you bring across our paths, that we would think about them having to experience this apart from the Lord, apart from, the, apart from uh, Christ and what he's done. And so I pray that we would be uh, burdened to share the gospel more, Lord. I, I thank you for these verses, as difficult as they are to, to teach and to consider. I don't think difficult to understand, but just really to fathom the reality of them, Lord. Um, you've given us this revelation. We, we do praise you for it and ask that you can be exalted uh, during this time as we can grow in our appreciation for your holiness and justice, which is really what comes to mind for me as I, I think about what's poured out on, on Christ rejecting people, that this is really a manifestation of your justice and holiness, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 16, 24. We began the account of the rich man and Lazarus last week and made it through verse 23, and we'll be picking up at verse 24. As you know, religions have different beliefs about what happens when you die. And I looked up the beliefs of the five most uh, popular religions, popular by adherents of them. So just as a, a guess, who can guess one of the top five religions? What? Uh, would you say Mormonism? Catholicism. We're going to put those, lump those under, under Christianity. So let's keep going here. I bet we can figure these out. Allie? Islam. Islam is number two. And Muslims believe that everyone will be resurrected into either paradise or hell based on their obedience to the five pillars. So works-based religion. And if you live well enough, you get to go to paradise. What's another religion? What else do you think is in the top five, huh? Buddhism is fourth. Buddhists believe in reincarnation. They believe that people who attain a state of enlightenment can enter nirvana, which is the highest state of perfect peace and happiness where there's no suffering and where you don't desire anything. What else? Hinduism, that's right, third. Hindus also believe in reincarnation. They believe that people are reincarnated based on their karma or how they lived their previous life, and they'll take on a greater or lesser form. Anyone guess the fifth one? Taoism? It's actually Sikhism. I would not have, I would not have guessed that. Uh, Sikhs do not believe in an afterlife such as heaven or hell. They believe in reincarnation, and the way you live in this life determines your next form or your form in the next life. Christianity is first, not because I think that there really are that many Christians in the world, 
but because it lumps all the religions that call themselves Christian in this category. And that would be even the, the religions we don't consider to be Christian or that we would consider to be cults. And among the cults, there are different beliefs about the afterlife. For example, Mormons believe that there are different levels or kingdoms, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, the telestial kingdom, and outer darkness. And people go to one of these kingdoms depending on what they believed and how they lived this life. Jehovah's Witnesses, I just learned this this past week, I, I, was, um, I knew they believed in annihilation, but I didn't know that they believe our souls are, immor- our, our souls are not immortal. They believe our souls cease functioning just like our physical bodies. And so when people die, they experience soul sleep. Unrighteous people remain dead for eternity or essentially annihilated, but the righteous are resurrected. Seventh-day Adventists also believe in soul sleep and annihilation. And then when Christ returns, he will awaken believers to go to heaven with him while unbelievers will cease existing. And then Catholics believe that people go to heaven, hell, or purgatory. And we'll talk more about that a little later in the sermon. Now, this account actually shows us what happens when unbelievers die. And if you just think about it from a don't answer too quickly, but is the account primarily about Lazarus or the rich man? Is the account primarily about Lazarus or the rich man? There are 13 verses, and almost all of the verses are about who? The rich man. There's very little attention given to Lazarus's experience after death. In fact, unless I'm missing something, there are only two things said of him. First, where he finds himself, at Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. And second, what he experienced, which is comfort. And other than that, there's no other attention given to Lazarus's experience. Everything else is about the rich man and what he was going through, which is really to say that this is largely an account about what happens to unbelievers when they die. I even even adjusted the sermon because I was going to talk about what believers and unbelievers experience when they die, but there's so little about believers' uh, life or life after death. Last week, we made it through verse 23. We'll pick up a verse 24 with the rich man's experience, which will help us understand what happens to unbelievers when they die. So verse 24, the rich man calls out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, this is the first of two times in this account that the rich man tries to get Lazarus to do what? Serve him or help him. Did you notice that? There's two times in this account that the rich man, it's almost like he maintains the same view in the next life that he had in this life that Lazarus is going to be his, his servant. He ignored Lazarus during his earthly life, but now he pays special attention to him because he wants him to do something for him. But look at Abraham's response, verse 25. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And this is a perfect example of justice. The rich man ended up being treated exactly like he treated others. And what I mean by that is he sh- there's no evidence of him showing compassion to anyone in his earthly life, and now his request for compassion is met with the same response that he gave, which is no compassion at all. He gave no compassion in his earthly life, and he receives no compassion in the next life. And this brings us to the first part of lesson one. 
When unbelievers die, part one, they are in torment. When unbelievers die, they are in torment. Something that stood out to me in this account is that it doesn't only show us what the next life includes, it shows us what the next life excludes. And so what came to mind for me as I was studying this week is how much this account conflicts with or disagrees with the beliefs of those false religions or most of the false religions uh, or almost all the false religions in the world. Briefly take your mind to what I shared and you'll see if you keep those religions in mind how much scripture conflicts with them. Now first, the afterlife does not include soul sleep as some religions, even Christian, some, some religions like Seventh-day Adventists that would call themselves Christians, believe the rich man and Lazarus, it does not look like they're sleeping, does it? They are more than aware of what's happening, uh, uh, their circumstances, where they find themselves, they're completely conscious. They are capable of feeling intense comfort and intense pain. Second, we see there's no reincarnation, which is the most common belief among most of the world's religions outside of Christianity. The rich man and Lazarus, they are not coming back as different forms based on the way they live their earthly lives. Lazarus is not going to, even though Lazarus seemed to have been a man of faith or of morality in his earthly life, he's not going to come back as a rich man. And because the rich man was an immoral and selfish man during his earthly life, there's no indication that he's going to come back as a poor man or like Lazarus in the next life, or worse, perhaps some animal or some insect, which, uh, which is the, the belief if you're bad enough in some of these religions, you don't even get to come back as a human. You'll come back as an animal or something worse. Third, we see the afterlife does not include annihilation for the unrighteous. The rich man remained very much in existence. Now, if you remember last week, I told you, well, how, did I, how do we define death? Death is when what occurs. Does anyone remember? And if the soul leaves the body. That's exactly right. We would define death as the moment that the soul leaves the body. And if you remember, I also said that the soul goes to a different location than the body. The soul goes to Hades, and then the body remains wherever it was on the earth or under the earth, assuming that it was, it was buried. And so in this account, the rich man and Lazarus's souls were in Hades, but their bodies were in different places. The rich man received a burial, so even though his soul is in Hades, his body would be wherever it was buried. There's no indication that, that Lazarus was buried, and so more than likely his body just remained above ground until perhaps someone moved it or did something with it. Because their souls were separated from their bodies, we might be tempted to think that they didn't feel or experience anything. Because feeling or suffering is very physical to us, we might think that when the soul leaves the body, then that also means the departure of feeling and experiences as we know it. And we see from this account that that is definitely not the case. They continued to experience, well, the rich man, uh, Lazarus, experienced comfort, and the rich man, very intense pain here. There are 13 verses in this account, and most of the verses focus on the rich man's torment. Just listen to this theme. In verse 23, it says that he's in torment. In verse 24, it says that he is in anguish. Verse 25, Abraham says that he is an ang- the rich man is in anguish. And then in verse 28, he says that he is in a place of torment. So God really wants to make sure that we don't miss just how terrible the next life is for unbelievers. And if you want to understand how bad the torment is, consider the rich man seemed to want nothing more at this moment than for Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool his tongue 
but he wasn't even able to experience that relief. And so I take this to mean that the torment in Hades, and remember, the lake of fire or hell is even worse than this, that the torment in the next life for unbelievers does not even allow the slightest pleasure. It does not even allow any sort of relief. And to see the excruciating suffering or torment that the rich man is in now and to think that the lake of fire or hell is worse than that, it's, it's almost unimaginable to me. What do some people foolishly say about hell? I don't really care. I'll get to go see my friends. It's going to be a big party or a celebration. They will foolishly mock the torment of hell. They act like it's not going to be that bad. Or if they go there in the future, it's going to be this place that they get to enjoy with the other people they know who live wickedly. They'll say, I don't mind if I go there, I'm going to have lots of good company. And there's nothing remotely comical about hell. I mean, to see the excruciating torment that the rich man experiences, it was, just, it was almost troubling to me this week, to be honest. I've always struggled with, with the reality of hell. I've always struggled with eternal suffering that never ends. Because anything we experience in this life, there's always that reality that is going to end at some point, even if that end is death itself. There's that relief. But the hell within hell is the reality that it never ends. I mean, that alone is a hell, isn't it? The rich man did not see Hades, this torment, which isn't even hell itself, the way that some people see hell. There's no joking. There's no uh, mocking. It's not remotely comical to him. It's so bad that in a moment, we'll see this more in next, next Sunday's sermon, he wants to prevent his brothers from joining him here. He didn't talk about them coming and having some, some party or celebration together for all eternity. One of the reasons that some commentators don't view this account literally, is and that's been a theme over the last few weeks, that I know some people don't hold to the two-compartment theory that I do. And one of the reasons that some people won't hold to this two-compartment theory is based on verse 23, when it says that the rich man was able to lift up his eyes and see Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so they don't think that the rich man should be able to do this, to look up and see Lazarus. But this is not the only place in Scripture that seems to indicate the possibility of this happening. Briefly turn a few chapters to the left to Luke 13. Look at Luke 13, we'll start at verse 27. Jesus is talking. I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. This is parallel to the more well-known account in, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, right? This is like Luke's version of that. And so Jesus, Luke 13, 27, I tell you, I don't know you, where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Verse 28, we know hell is in view here. It says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And notice this. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. So Jesus did not say that unbelievers will know that there are these people in a blessed comfort. He says you're going to see them there. It's parallel to Luke 16. And somehow, which I don't know that I fully understand, I just see two accounts in Luke's gospel where Jesus says that unbelievers not only are aware of the believer's comfort and peace, but even seem to be able to see them. 
So the unrighteous in torment can see the righteous while they're in comfort. And it seems to be this knowledge that causes or at least contributes to the weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, it, look, look at the way this is worded. Look at verse 20, 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And so Jesus said it is actually seeing them there in comfort while they're suffering that causes this extra torment for them or causes them to weep and then gnash this teeth. So part of the torment in Hades, at least, I don't, I don't know that in the lake of fire people, uh, unbelievers can see believers, but at least part of the torment in Hades is the knowledge of the blessedness and comfort the righteous dead experience and the knowledge that unbelievers rejected that or forfeited it is probably a better way because he says that he says you yourselves are when you see that you've been thrust out so part of the torment for unbelievers is knowing what they forfeit forfeited there's going to be do you have you ever thought of this for a moment there are going to be unbelievers who will spend all of eternity remembering the gospel was shared with them and they rejected it can you believe that can you imagine the the regret that people would experience knowing they heard the gospel they learned about what jesus did for them and they rejected that and that that knowledge could have saved them from what they were will experience for the rest of eternity and these are these are really unimaginable truths for me just to cons- i can't even wrap my mind around what that will end up being like for these people this past week i received a comment on my blog from someone i don't know it's interesting how sometimes i feel like god is is introducing people into my life uh on my blog that then their comments end up lining up with things that i'm preaching on so then i can share these things with them and sometimes wonder maybe this is god's way of trying to reach these people i can share the sermons with them that i'm that i'm preaching or my notes that i'm preparing so someone wrote on my blog this past week and i'm going to share what he wrote because it captures the common view of annihilation and here's what this this gentleman said he said first you won't find eternal torment one time in the old testament now that's not true if you remember our sermon from a couple weeks ago i said that the next life is largely veiled or shadowy in the old testament compared to the new testament but there is at least one verse in the old testament i shared with you that discusses eternal life and eternal judgment daniel 12 2 many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt then this gentleman continued he said jesus never talked about hell not once he talked about gehenna the valley of hinnom and in the rest of the new testament you can't validate eternal conscious torment from one verse in revelation speaking of the lake of fire so in other words if i understand him he's saying that we cannot we cannot support the doctrine of eternal punishment as we know it from one verse in revelation about the lake of fire now that's not that's misleading because as you probably remember from two sermons ago when we looked in revelation 20 at the lake of fire there's more than one verse about the lake of fire it is a pretty lengthy detailed description in revelation uh, 20. there are multiple verses there and there's another section of revelation that describes eternal conscious torment and the reason this gentleman i'm guessing he's a jehovah's witness 
the reason that he'll, they'll frequently say things like eternal conscious torment is because they're going to take the verses that we generally interpret referring to hell, and they're going to say that those verses are about what instead? Annihilation. So that's where there's that conscious language of eternal conscious torment, because they believe nobody's conscious any longer. They've been annihilated. But listen to this, Revelation 14.10. Those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name, will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest for them day or night. Now, any honest reading of Scripture has to acknowledge that this cannot be annihilation. It is talking about a perpetual torment with no relief or rest whatsoever, similar to what the rich man is enduring just in the place of torment in Hades. As far as Jesus never talking about hell, which is one of the other things this gentleman said, Jesus made 16 direct references to hell. For example, Matthew 5, here's just two of them, Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's more profitable that one of your members perish than for what? Your whole body to be cast into hell. Luke 12, 5, I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Those are just the direct references to hell. There are 17 indirect references to hell. And what I mean by that is where Jesus didn't mention hell using the word hell, but he mentioned hell using other words like fire or destruction or the worm dying not or the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth or the place of outer darkness. Here's an example. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by that. That's talking about the path to hell. Mark 9 says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's referring to hell. Did Jesus talk about hell a lot in the Gospels? He talked about it an incredible amount. It's one of the most common things he discussed. Look at verse 26 as we learn more about the afterlife. And I guess the point is the account with the rich man and Lazarus, I'd say like this, it annihilates the idea of annihilation. The rich man and Lazarus destroys the idea that people are annihilated when they've been wicked. The rich man would have wished he was annihilated so he didn't have to experience this torment, but that simply is not the case. Verse 26, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, earlier, the rich man, in the, in the earthly lives where the rich man and Lazarus are pretty close, I don't mean relationally close, I mean physically or geographically close. Yeah, the rich man was where? Or I mean the Lazarus was laid where? Right at his gate, right outside his house. Now there's this great chasm between them, and I want you to notice how it's worded. It says, a great chasm has been fixed. Or I think when Ben read in the NASB, it says, has been set versus saying a great chasm exists, or there just happens to be a great chasm there. And the idea is, this is a chasm that has been established or placed there by a person or by an individual. This chasm was created. It's deliberate. It's intentional. And who is the individual who placed this chasm there? It's God himself. It is written in such a way that you can't miss that God set up the afterlife 
so that the righteous and unrighteous remain separated eternally. And this brings us to the next part of the lesson. When unbelievers die, part two, they receive no second chances. When unbelievers die, they receive no second chances. Last week, after the sermon, someone came up to me, and they made the point that they could understand why, the, why Abraham said that nobody could pl- pass from the place of torment to the place of comfort, comfort, but what else does it say? It says nobody could pass from the place of comfort to the place of torment, which kind of makes you wonder why would someone want to pass from the place of comfort to the place of torment. I could be wrong, but maybe someone would wonder if they could deliver a loved one, or maybe someone would want to go across and bring, and bring someone that they think that shouldn't be there. But just so there's no question in anyone's minds, it is abundantly clear that there's no passing from torment to comfort or from comfort to torment. And this lesson, you could read this and say, well, we already know this. It's an important lesson because it answers one of the most common questions that people have. Is there a second chance for unbelievers? And this account resolves that for us. We never have to wonder that. This account tells us the answer is no, but many false religions, and I don't mean false religions like Hinduism or Buddhism, but many false religions that call themselves Christian do believe that there is a second chance for unbelievers after death. The most well-known example is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church does not teach that all of our sins are paid for when we put our faith in Christ, and and that's why we must regularly throughout our Catholic lives go to a priest to confess our sins that we commit after coming to Christ. And if you didn't know that, that's that's what's going on, is you come to faith in Christ, and he took the punishment for those sins you committed in the past, but you've got to keep going to a priest throughout your Catholic life to confess the further sins that you commit. But the problem is, Ever, almost ever. I mean, unless you walk out of the confessional and the church collapses on you, which was pretty much the only time that I ever thought I would go straight to heaven as a Catholic. I thought if I can walk out of the confessional, if I slam the door hard enough, maybe the building will collapse on me and then I can go to heaven. But otherwise, I'm going to die as a Catholic and I will have unconfessed sin and then I'm going to go where? To suffer for those sins. To purgatory. And so that's where where or how purgatory came into existence is this place of suffering or torment, remedial cleansing, until you've suffered enough to be absolved of those sins that you can then go to heaven. The Catholic Church also teaches that if you want to get a loved one out of purgatory faster, what can you do? Besides praying for them, I can remember the number of masses that were said for my brother after he passed away, the money that we gave to the church to, uh, or prayers that were offered to, to, if my brother was in purgatory, to get him out of purgatory faster. For those of you familiar with the Reformation, you, this is, this is uh, familiar to you because you know this is like the last straw for Martin Luther. He just couldn't handle it anymore because the Catholic Church was taking money called indulgences. You give them money and then you get your loved ones out of purgatory faster. And he's already struggling enough, and then he just starts hammering, right, on the door, right? <laughs> the Wittenberg chapel he puts up there about the indulgences and 98 other things that were really bothering him, and it begins the, the Reformation. Now, the reason I mention this is in this account, the rich man is not working off his sins. There is no indication whatsoever that this torment is ever going to end or that once he's suffered enough, he's going to be able to go to heaven. The other religion that teaches that there are second chances is Mormonism's. 
or is Mormonism. Mormons believe that living people can be baptized in lieu of a person who has died as a way of making a public profession of faith on that individual's behalf. And so basically the living person is baptized in the dead person's place. Now, when I became a school tutor, I've mentioned this before, I was uh, pretty good friends with a Mormon, and we used to have a lot, he was very comfortable uh, talking about our faiths, and he never took personally any of the questions that I asked him. He never thought that I was mocking him, and I don't believe I was. I believe I was asking genuinely to understand Mormonism. And at one point I asked him, do you think I would go to heaven if I died then, because I reject Mormon doctrine, I reject Joseph Smith and the, and the, test, the New Testament, you guys, uh, the Book of Mormon is a New Testament of Christ, I reject that completely. What would he think is going to happen to me when I die? And he said, well, I think I'll go to heaven, and that surprised me. But do you know why he thought I would go to heaven? Because he said he thought someone would be baptized for me. And so that was why he thought that I could go. Now listen to this verse that could almost sound like it argues for the baptism of the dead. And if you deal with Mormons, more than likely this is the place you're going to go or they're going to go. My responsibility is to equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry. And I want you to know how to respond, or even if you never meet Mormons, just to understand what this verse is and isn't saying. So listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Wow. Well, the context of this chapter is super important for interpreting this correctly. If, if two chapters earlier, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter, right? You ever want to read about the resurrection? Read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is arguing for the resurrection, and he makes this point to people who are denying the resurrection. He says, if your people and he doesn't mean Christians, he means people involved in pagan religions. He said, if your people in pagan religions are baptizing people for the dead, why would they be doing that if there was no afterlife? That's Paul's point. Paul is not legitimizing baptism for the dead. We don't see it anyplace else. It's not commanded anywhere. There's no instruction to do it. Paul is just making this argument that if you guys don't believe in the next life, then why would you be baptizing people who are alive for people who are dead if there's no resurrection for those dead people anyway why even bother if there's no life after this life but he wasn't justifying or legitimizing baptism for the dead hebrews 9 27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so in other words there are no second chances for unbelievers after death look at verse 27 to learn more about the afterlife he said this is the rich man then i beg you father to send him lazarus to my father's house for i have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment and so again it's quite the reversal who was the beggar during earthly life who who's the beggar now he literally it says that i beg you i am begging you here's a quote that i read this past week if the living knew what the dead knew, the whole world would follow Jesus. If the living knew what the dead knew, the whole world would follow Jesus. This is true, and if you wanted biblical support for this quote, you need look no further than the account of the rich man and Lazarus. 
because the rich man now wants now that he knows what a dead person knows wants all of his brothers to not join him here he's convinced if they know what he knew then they would not as he said follow him to this place of torment now when i officiate the funerals for unbelievers and perhaps if you're ever forced to officiate the funeral of an unbeliever or invited to speak at the funeral of an unbeliever or are invited to one and there's an open mic and you have the opportunity to address people don't lie you cannot lie you can't you can you imagine the incredible disservice you would be doing to those people present to tell them that their unbelieving loved one is in peace or is in a better place you could not speak a worse lie than to say something like that at a funeral whenever you have the opportunity to tell people the truth do that and so if you're at a funeral here's what you can say if your loved one was here right now this is what he or she would want me to tell you and then preach the gospel and that's the approach i've taken if your loved one was here right now and could talk to you this i believe is what he or she would want me to say and so i'm going to share that with you and then preach the gospel to them very very boldly now the rich man remembered who, who did the rich man remember this isn't a trick question who did the rich man remember from his earthly life his five brothers and lazarus right and this brings us to the next part of lesson one when unbelievers die part three they remember their earthly lives when unbelievers die part three they remember their earthly lives this answer is one of the other more common questions that people have about the next life will we have knowledge of or remember our earthly lives and if you the the rich man he did he didn't get a new consciousness he didn't have his memory wiped clean instead he seemed to remember his earth life maybe better than he had before because people can get older and they can lose memories but what did what did abraham say to him look in verse 25 abraham said child remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and remember lazarus received many bad things and so abraham this tells us that the rich man could remember not just his life but could even remember lazarus's life and one of the other questions we have is in the next life will we recognize people so the rich man he remembered his father he was concerned maybe his father's died i don't know and he thought there was no hope for him but he remembered his five brothers he remembered lazarus he remembered a lot of people from his earthly life another question we have is are we going to recognize people from our earthly lives and it seems so the rich man recognized lazarus he knew who he was when he lifted up his eyes and saw him and interestingly even though the rich man had never met abraham before he seemed to recognize him as well which tells me that in the next life are we going to have less knowledge or more knowledge in the next life we're going to have more knowledge I think there's this belief that we go to the next life and then we enter like this dreamlike state and we forget things and and everything's very veiled and shadowy things are veiled and shadowy now compared to the next life now we're now is more like a dream the next life is more awake 
And 1 Corinthians 13 agrees with that, where it says that we now we see dimly or in part, but then we will know fully. The mention of the five brothers, it's the first indication that the rich man thought about anyone but himself. But unfortunately, his concern for his brothers came too late, as Abraham says. Look in verse 29. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let your brothers hear Moses and the prophets. And so notice that not only would Abraham not allow Lazarus to communicate with his brothers, he also would not allow anyone from the dead to communicate with them. And this brings us to lesson two. The living shouldn't communicate with the dead. The living shouldn't communicate with the dead. I'm a black and white person. I wanted to be able to write this lesson as the living can't communicate with the dead. (laughs) Why couldn't I say the living can't communicate with the dead? Take your minds to last week's sermon. We have at least one instance in Scripture, the witch at Endor, when, when Saul went to her to then communicate with Samuel, um, of someone in Scripture communicating with someone who's dead. And so I just couldn't uh, honestly say that we can't communicate with the dead because of that instance in Scripture. But I can say that I don't think we can, we, I don't think we can communicate with the dead. And so you say, well, how can I say that based on what we read last week? It's important to understand that just because something happens doesn't mean it's normative, just be, does that make sense? Can something happen to someone in Scripture and we shouldn't look at that and assume the same thing is going to happen to us or for us? Can God do certain things in people's lives and we should not assume that he's going to do the exact same thing in our life? Absolutely. And so I don't see any instruction in the epistles, which are the instruction letters for the church age, to communicate with the dead or even to believe that we can communicate with the dead. So I don't think we can communicate with the dead But because of that instance, even though it's just an isolated instance, I don't think that we can. And I don't think it's normative, and it's definitely not prescriptive because Saul's behavior was terribly wicked. Listen to this. 1 Chronicles 10, 13. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So this is interesting. These verses in Chronicles tell us why Saul's reign ended and why his dynasty came to an end as well. The throne did not go to his son. If you asked me, if I had not ever read these verses, why Saul lost the throne, I'd probably say he offered the sacrifice in 1 Samuel 13 that Samuel was supposed to offer. And that's actually when God told Saul through Samuel that God was going to give the throne to a man after his own heart, David. And so that's when Saul learned he'd lose the throne. Or maybe you'd say, well, 1 Samuel 15, when Saul failed to exterminate all of the Amalekites, that was another major failure in Saul's life. Or maybe you just look at the majority of Saul's reign and how he spent it trying to murder David. None of those are mentioned. None of those are mentioned as the reason that Saul lost the throne. Instead, the one failure that we're reminded of is him consulting a medium. That's what the chronicler chose to tell us about, why he was dethroned. And there are plenty of other verses in the Old Testament that condemn 
attempting to communicate with the dead. A few verses, Leviticus 19.31, don't turn to mediums or necromancers, don't seek them out. Leviticus 20, verse 6, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I'll set my face against that person and cut him off from among his people. That is strong language. God says if someone attempted to communicate with the dead, God would set his face against them. In other words, God's going to become that person's enemy, and then he's going to cut him off. Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter. So no, no one who offers children as sacrifices or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or charmer or a medium or necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because these abominations, God is driving them out, will drive you out. And so mediums, and inquiring of the dead, they're called abominations. They're compare, it's compared with child sacrifice, and it's listed as one of the reasons that God would drive the people out of the land. I didn't think, I don't know if I consider until this past week just how serious of a sin it actually is to attempt to communicate with the dead, which is to say that Christians have no business ever being engaged in or associated with what? Ouija boards seances um fortune tellers if they if they i don't think you shouldn't go to fortune tellers anyway but especially if they believe they're getting their wisdom or knowledge from the dead we have no no business associating with any of these things i spent much of my catholic life doing exactly what is forbidden here inquiring of the dead on behalf of the living who are the dead that catholics are generally inquired to consult with the saints and mary listen to this isaiah eight nineteen. when they say to you inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter should not a people inquire of their god should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living or in other words should they be looking to the dead to act as mediators or or um intercessors between god and man and that that's an, exactly what i spent 20 years in the in the catholic church doing i i probably i don't even know if i really prayed to god it was always prayers to mary always prayers to to saints now let me conclude the, with this when i was a school teacher there was one year that i had an aide in my class that the school assigned she was a jehovah's witness and she's probably in her 70s or 80s she's a very sweet woman uh, I think we became friends. Maybe you could say we became close friends. We had a, a whole year together, and I really grew to have a lot of affection for her, and I believe she grew to have an uh, affection for me. And there were many things I appreciated about her, and I think there were lots of things about me that she appreciated, like my heart for my students to come to know Christ. And she, she saw that even though I was in the public school system, there were these ways that I was attempting to, you know, share my faith, and she, I think she thought that was honorable. And so when we'd get chances, we'd have these, these conversations about religion and about our differences. And occasionally, uh, we would talk about hell. And she believed largely, like the man who commented on my blog because she was a Jehovah's Witness, that people are annihilated if they're unbelievers or unrighteous. In other words, they don't experience, as that man was saying, eternal conscious torment. So I showed her some of the verses that I mentioned in this uh, very sermon. 
And she didn't have an answer, so she said she would get back to me about it. And it seemed to be a settled issue for her, so I guess she hadn't spent any more time um, trying to figure out what these verses mean. And so, like, the next week she came back and she brought me this copy of the Watchtower magazine, which is the publication of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it took all these verses about hell and turned them into annihilation. Uh, now, I can understand why people want to believe in annihilation. I don't, there's no confusion. I could want to believe in annihilation, but I don't because an honest reading of Scripture tells us unbelievers are not annihilated. They suffer eternal torment. We serve a perfectly holy and just God, and this is the punishment for people who die without Christ. Do you, do you want to know why I struggle with the doctrine of eternal torment? Because I'm not perfectly just. Because I'm fallible, I'm sinful, I have a weak mind compared to the mind of God, I don't see things fully or completely. So I know that any of my deficiencies are associated with my fallen nature and my weakness and my immaturity. And so I know that if I had God's perfect understanding in mind or his perfect justice, I can embrace these truths easier. But just because we struggle with something, it doesn't stop being a truth. And so I know that this is the truth. I know this is what the Bible teaches. Now, during one of our conversations, I still remember she said this to me, and she was pretty broken up about this. She said, I think it troubled her because she liked me that I believed in hell. And she said, how could a loving father send his children to hell? How could a loving father send his children to hell? And do you know what I said? I said, a loving father doesn't send his children to hell. The people that go to hell are not God's children. God doesn't send any children to hell any more than you would send any children to hell. The children who go to hell are children of earthly parents. They are objects of God's wrath. They have not been reconciled to him. First John or John 1:12 it says to all who did receive Christ who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God If you want to avoid the punishment or you want anyone else to avoid the punishment that we discussed in this sermon then they must become a child of God which can be done through repentance and faith in Christ does anyone know who Abraham Piper is by chance? Abraham Piper is John Piper, John Piper, the famous pastor and author, his son, who was excommunicated from John's church when he was 19 for his uh, uh, unbelief, for his apostasy, and then repented, came back to the church, and then was excommunicated again when he was 24, and has then recently, or at least over the last some years, became a very vocal critic of Christianity and his upbringing, and it must be a heartbreaking thing for John to have to have to uh, see. I was watching a video from this gentleman, Abraham Piper, and he said something that shocked me because of the truth of it. He said that he doesn't believe Christians believe in hell. He said, I don't think that Christians really believe in hell. Do you know why he said we don't believe in it? Because we don't share the gospel. He said if Christians really believed in hell, they would be sharing the gospel with people. 
they don't love the people around them, or they don't believe in hell. Because if they believed in hell, they would be sharing the gospel with their friends and their neighbors and their loved ones. If we believe the gospel's power to save, how could we not be sharing that gospel with the people that we care about? And when Abraham said that, I was deeply convicted. And so we're approaching a season when there is a greater attention on Christ, a greater receptivity to spiritual matters. And so I just want to, I don't preach this sermon because I believe locally we have a lot of people in our church going to hell. I don't believe that. But I share this sermon, well, we reached this in Luke's gospel, and I believe it's what God wanted me to share, because, but I also, because I hope that the, it, we're sober to the reality of hell and how terrible it is, and how we would want to see people delivered from that. And so what better reason would we have to share the gospel with people we love? If you have any questions about anything that I've shared this morning, or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up right after service, and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for these difficult verses. It's never pleasant to think about hell. If we think of it, I hope, it's only, I hope it only grows our appreciation for Christ and what he's delivered us from. The good news isn't just that we get to go to heaven. The good news is also that we were delivered from uh, eternal punishment, from the wrath our sins deserve. And I recognize, Lord, you're perfectly holy and just. This is the fitting punishment for sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would be moved to share the gospel with others those around us, those you put in our paths because of our love or concern for them and desire for them not to experience what the rich man experienced here. And I, I think about this season we're approaching, and I know it's uncomfortable, it's a stretch for us to share our faith at times. Give us a boldness and a courage that we might normally lack, Lord, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.